When you open up your Bible, the Bible tells us how to live the Christian life. We know we are saved by grace through faith in, in Christ alone, and then we go forth to live by grace through faith in Christ alone. This requires that we know who we are in Christ and know our union in Jesus Christ. Very important truth. And then we abide in Jesus Christ, depending only upon him. And we must be hearers and doers of the word of God. We must submit to the Lord as the master of our lives. We must wait upon him. There are many commands and many responsibilities and and many duties. But I think we would all say that living the Christian life is not a horrible task. Sometimes Christians say, or non-Christians say, oh, I feel sorry for you Christians because you have all these things that you have to do as a Christian. And, and what they don't realize is the things that we have to do are not wearisome or odious. They are really a, a, a privilege. It's, it's a privilege and a blessing to live for the Lord. And we would have it no other way. And we live the Christian life looking for the Lord. And I want to just put your uh, finger in the book of Jude, because that's where we're going to come back. But again, I've been reading over and over again um, the book of Colossians. And uh, there are three central passages in in Colossians that... uh, in order to get the thrust of this book, it's, it's about the centrality of Jesus Christ. And, and this uh, clearly points uh, to him. But the first statement is in chapter 1 and verse 27 when it says, To, to them God will to make known what are the riches, the glory, this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the mystery among the Gentiles? And he says, it's Christ in you. Christ in you. And then he looks off into the distance and says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's the mystery. That's the the, the secret of the Christian life. You see Christ and all he has done in chapter 1 and all that he is in chapter 1. But the secret is not just that we believe in Jesus Christ, but we do believe in him. But then we have this union with Jesus, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then you look to verses 6 and 7 of the next chapter and says, "Therefore, as you have therefore received him, and I've pointed out many times this, this receiving him refers to something that you actively did in the past. You actively received him. As you have, and I'll say it in, that, in those terms, as you have therefore actively received Jesus Christ, so actively walk in him. That's the command of this whole passage. Walk in Him. Keep on walking in Him. This is your active responsibility. This is your active duty. You actively received Him. You actively um, are commanded to walk in Him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now you actively walk in Him. In Jesus Christ. And then the rest of these things refer to things that are happening to you. They're all passives. And there are what I would consider to be a divine passive, meaning that God is active in these statements. Rooted. That means to be rooted and continually be rooted and built up in the faith. As you have been taught, you have been taught, and you are, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. 
So rooted, built up, established in the faith, and taught are all happening to you as you have actively received and as you are walking these things God is doing in you because he is in you. Rooting you, building you up in, in him, establishing you in the faith as you have been taught, and then again actively abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's where you are again active. But then turn over to chapter 3. Because here it says, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's how you walk. And then it says, this is your perspective. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've received him, so walk in him with God doing all of these things in your heart and life. And then keep your eyes fixed on him. And um, set your mind on things above. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. It's, it's, always, it's always looking to Jesus Christ, who is in you, walking in him, looking to him. And that's really a descriptive of the Christian life. But always there's a sense of, of the grace of God now and the glory of God that we look forward to. And glory should always be our expectation and, and looking for that glory to come. And that's why I say, you know, the Christian life is about living, Christian living and looking. And uh, we look to the Lord for his power and his provision. We look to the Lord for ultimately his presence and the final victory. We look for the, the coming of the Lord. And uh, so we sum things up. Live looking. Live by faith. Look to the Lord in his, for his presence and for his grace. Look to the Lord for his presence and his glory. In fact, we'd say if you live without looking, you will become discouraged. And if you look without living, you will stumble and fall. So you must do both. We must live by faith. And as you live the Christian life, it's like running the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. The author and the finisher of faith. So it's always important, and one of the things that really has impressed me as we've been going through John 17 is the way in which the Lord in this prayer is looking for that, that final triumph of glory when we're all together with Him in glory in the very presence of Almighty God. And it, He goes from the, the really the height of this, this, this prayer to the depths of the cross in a day. But it's as if Christ never lost sight of what the awfulness of the cross was accomplishing. The, the glory to come. And that's why he goes with his disciples. He prepares them for the things that are going to take place. He prays for this, this glorious triumph. And then he goes to the cross. And I think that in going to the cross, the Lord Jesus never lost sight of the glory to come. 
In fact, that's the, what sustained him in his, his own spirit with reference to the ministry that he was carrying out, is just to know that this, this, the, the awfulness of suffering and dying on the cross for the sin of sinners, the awfulness of, of him being so associated with our sin that it demanded his death, and the awfulness of the Father pouring out his wrath upon him, some really awful things that took place uh, at the cross. But in the awfulness of all of that, what, what shines through all of that awfulness is, is the glory to come. And so you see that in, in this text. But also I want you to look at Jude. And I want you to look at this passage as well. Here again, you, in, in, if you read your Bible, you'll see the, the grace and glory, this, this, the, the, the grace of God, the provision of God. But yes, keep looking for that which is to come. You see it here in this passage as well. This is a short epistle in, in the Bible, uh, one chapter. It's always kind of annoying to me because I always want to say it's always Jude 1 through 5, and I always I it should be Jude chapter 1, colon, 1 through 5, but I, nobody ever lists the, the one chapter because there is only one chapter, so it just lists. You see, I'm speaking tonight on Jude verses 20 and 21, and it should be Jude chapter 1 verses 20 and 21, but that's because this is a short little epistle, but an important epistle. And it's an epistle, as you know, we sing verses 24 and 25 at the end of our services, most of the services. And it's a great benediction. And um, I want to look at these verses, but let me give you the general context, because this is a, a warning that Jude is giving with reference to false teachers. And if you look at the history of the church, one of the stories of the history of the church is the story of false teachers. Because heresy often arises from within the church. False teacher arises, and he begins to teach. In fact, you can sort of teach church history by teaching the false doctrines that have been taught throughout the history of the church. And the false teachers that have risen up, mainly from within the church, mainly from within Christianity, just as this passage talks about. And Gnosticism was already in its early stages in the first century, so you can see that Jude is giving a, a strong warning that needs to be heard. And and this warning is in verses 3 and 4. He says, Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here is this denial. Now the actual denials were uh, really, um, in you, when you look into church history, they were harder to perceive because the, the actual denials gave the appearance of trying to uh, preserve the dignity of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, for example, they said, if, as in Greek philosophy, that spirit is good and matter is good, bad, then Jesus probably didn't have a material body because he was good. So he didn't have a body. He wasn't really fully human. He was fully divine, but not fully human. And 
so the church gathers for a conference and they meet, the elders come together and they sit down and they open up the scriptures that they have and they examine the text and they said, no, he really did have a, a human body. He was fully human, fully divine, yet without sin. So you have that statement that I repeat often, but that's just a statement that was made by the early church concerning the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. But false doctrine often comes with the idea of of preserving truth or keeping something that needs to be upheld rather than saying, I'm a false teacher. False teachers don't usually come in and say, I want to ruin your life. I want to ruin the doctrine of the church. So I'm going to teach something that's really lousy so that you will be destroyed as Christians. I don't think most false teachers think that way, and I definitely don't teach that way. Satan, when he was in the garden, he taught disobedience as a way to be like God. He taught it as a, you can deny God to to really be like Him. And so false teachers often come in, in deceptive ways rather than ways that are easily discernible. So you have to be careful to stand for the truth. That's what he's saying. And um, stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, which is what the church has done over the years. The rest of, of this middle part of the passage is really speaking about the, the Lord knows how to judge. Uh, the Lord knows the false teachers. He, these men and individuals were marked out beforehand. And the Lord knows how to judge. And he will judge. And then you come to this Christian exhortation that is at the end. And, and this is in verses 20 through, uh, really the end, but 20 through 23 in particular. And uh, in, uh, in verses, these, these verses, actually, let me go back to verse 17. But you, beloved, but you... He's talked about what the false teachers are doing. Now he's talking about you. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. But you, verse 20, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This is last little instruction. And he's, he's talking, he says, okay, you are going to be living with false teachers. That has always been true in the church. And it always will be true in the church. So it's the promise of mockers in verses 17 through 19. And then in verses 20 and 21, which I want to look at with you, this living and looking. And then in verses 22 and 23, being merciful and saving those. But, but let's look at this text. Now, it's very interesting when you look at this text of Scripture because in, in teaching this passage, you really have to begin not in verse 20, but in verse 21. Because oftentimes what Scripture will do is give a command, and then the participles, the ing words, the participles help you to explain how to go about the command. And in this text, you'll notice that the explanation comes first. 
in verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, so he's talking to the believers, and he says, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, those are two things, those are participles. The command is, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And then there's a third. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So you have one command in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, how do you keep? I mean, we're going to talk about what that means. But we say, well, how do you do that? And there's three ways that you do that. Building yourselves, praying, and, look, and looking. So it's one command and three explanations as to how you do that. And the two that come before are sort of like, this is what you are doing when you are doing these two things because this is the command that you are to keep and you do this looking. So there's, there's reason why you spread these participles out and don't have just the command given first and, and uh, these that follow. But the first you look at in this, and so we'll say, let's examine this passage, so let's jump down to verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This, to understand this command, look, look at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus. This word preserved in Christ Jesus is the same word for kept. It's the same word in both of these, these passages. Kept in, kept in Jesus Christ, or kept, the New American Standard has kept for Jesus Christ. But this word means to, to keep one safe. It means to guard. It means to watch over. It means... In a positive sense, it means to keep someone safe from harm. There's a lot of harm going on in this passage. And it's wonderful when you say, look at the first verse and it says, you're kept in Jesus Christ or kept for Jesus Christ. For those, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. That's not the same word that's used for kept in verse 24. But it's, it's a word that means guarded. And here you have... Uh, the statement that's it's like saying, God is guarding you. It's one of the ministries that God has, and Jesus Christ was praying, Father, keep them and protect them, guard them, watch over them. But it's God's privilege, as far as we are concerned, in your life, to watch over you. It's a wonderful thing to know He's watching you. He's watching you in your spiritual life, He's guarding you. He's keeping you safe from harm. And it's a great start to the epistle to be kept by God. But now you come to verse 21, and it says, keep yourselves. It's the same word with the same kind of meaning. It means we're responsible to guard ourselves. I look at this and I say, I'm most thankful for verse 1, because I'm thankful that it is God who's guarding me. At the same time, and this is often the case, God tells you what he does and then tells you what you are to do in light of what he does because really the strength and power for your doing this comes from him. But he says, here's a great challenge for you. Keep yourselves in the love of God. In the love of God is 
is keeping yourself according to his purpose of seeking your greatest good. It's, it's like saying God has this pathway for you in life. And this is because he's written, given you this pathway, you're to stay on this pathway. Because he loves you. This pathway will have difficulties that come in the pathway. But the pathway is laid out for you because this is the place where God has determined that you're going to walk. Stay on the pathway. Stay as in the, in the place where, where God has determined his love for you. That means stay faithful to Jesus Christ. Because God loves us through Jesus Christ. So this idea of, of keeping yourselves in the, in the love of God is, is going to be explained in these verses that, in, and these participles, these three participles. But, but the force of that is that in, in, in view of God guarding us, we guard our own hearts. And here are these false teachers coming along and saying, you don't need Christ as a man. You don't need Christ as really a God. And a number of false teachers have come along teaching all these kinds of things about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Trinity, and then a number of other truths, in order to take you away from the love of God. In fact, when the serpent was speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden, effectively he was taking them away from the love of God. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you can ever be removed from the love of God, but I'm just saying that was his attempt to say, God has loved you. He's placed you in this garden. He's given you a command. This is all the love of God. Stay in that love. And if Adam and Eve would have stayed in the love of God, then when Satan came and said, I, you need to eat this, and they said, no, that's not God's loving way for us. That's not God's loving truth for us. We're going to stay in his love. We're going to keep ourselves. We're going to guard ourselves so that we remain in the pathway where God is seeking our greatest good. You say, okay, well then, how do you do that? Well, here is where these participles come in. They're wonderful uh, statements of how you keep yourself. And there are three things that are mentioned. The first is a statement that goes also before in this passage, but building yourselves up on your most holy faith. This building up is the word to edify. It's it's a a word that uh, the Bible likes to use. It's, it's, It's like learning more and more and more about the truth of God. And learning in the context of not only the teaching of God's word, but the experience of your life, the the significance of the truth. And it's interesting how God uses different circumstances to impress truth upon our hearts and lives. And what's happening is in our life, there's a building process that is taking place. And we're growing in our faith, and we're growing in our understanding of the faith, and we're growing in our dependence upon God in the faith, And there's this process of spiritual growth that takes place in the life, very much like building a building. And in building this building where you start with the foundation and you build it up. That's the picture of of us in the, the Christian life. And the defense 
against false doctrine is knowing the truth. I can, you know, people sometimes will ask me questions about some of the positions that have been taken by others that we would consider to be the cults. And uh, they say, well, what about this position of this particular cult? And I say, I really don't know. I haven't taken the time to study the cults. But the, the way you know what is false doctrine is not by studying the cults. The way you know false doctrine is when you are built up in the faith. Here it's spoken of as the most holy. It's a superlative. It's the most set apart faith. It's, it's God's truth. It's holy. It's His it's completely set apart maybe from the way in which people think in the world. But we are to be built up, to be edified in the body of truth that has been once delivered to the saints upon which our lives are built. And how do you do that? Well, you all are doing that right now because you come and you hear the Word of God. And whenever you hear the Word of God taught, you should be building your understanding and your appreciation and your love for the truth. And uh, I've said many times before, I hope as you come here, that you never learn anything new when you come here to Hillcrest Bible Church. But I hope what you hear is to be reinforced in the truth and a, a greater understanding of the truth that you already know and that you already love and you already appreciate. And what happens as you come and as you hear the Word of God, your understanding of the truth, it continues to grow. It also in the reading of the Word of God. It's very important for us to be readers of God's Word. And it's sometimes very much of a concern to me that I talk to young people and I ask them if they're reading their Bibles, and they are not. They don't. And um, so I encourage them just in ways to start reading. Read a psalm a day, just one psalm, and have prayer. And if you're a Christian, you should be looking to the Word of God and the truth of God because you, you have to be built up on the faith. And one of the reasons why the church can be at a state of weakness is because the church does not know the Scriptures. We need to know the truth. And when you know the truth, then you stand for the truth. When someone comes and says, Jesus Christ was not a man, I know that that's false doctrine. And I know that because he must be a God-man to be the one who intercedes between God and man. And I know uh, the significance of the humanity of Jesus Christ and the significance of the deity of Jesus Christ. You know those truths. And so someone can come along and say, well, I don't think that Jesus was really, uh, he was, he's, he's like God, but not really God. And I say, no, he's not like God, he's really God. So you, you, you understand the truth of God's Word so that when you see something that deviates from the truth, you, you know where you stand. Hearing the Word, uh, I think it's good that you, many of you talk to me sometimes about hearing preachers of the Word on the radio. Uh, they're great opportunity to focus in on, on we have the, a great privilege with hearing great preachers. And I think all of that is, is, is a, a wonderful way in which you are built up on your faith. And I even hear preachers that I'm not totally agreement with their theological position, but I find that I can always find truth and the truth of God's Word. And I'm not talking about teachers who are way out there, but I'm just saying teachers, 
you can always be taught when people open up their Bibles and they teach the Word of God. You can always get something. You can always get truth. You can always be encouraged in the Word. And that's the wonderful part of Scripture. But we need to know God through Jesus Christ and through His Word. And that's part of what it is to be a Christian, built up. And hopefully your knowledge is growing every year. And you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how God intends for us to keep yourselves in the love of God. You need to know the truth. So he says, the first part is simple, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. It's the body of truth that God has given to us. The second thing that is mentioned here is also important, is praying in the Holy Spirit. And um, we pray to the Father. Jesus Christ says when he taught his disciples to pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven. And so we pray to our Heavenly Father. We pray according to Jesus Christ. We enter into his presence through Jesus Christ. Our means of access to God is Christ alone. He is the way to God, the way to God in prayer, the way to God in salvation, the way to God in justification, sanctification, and glorification. Our way to God is always Jesus Christ. And when we bow before God, we say, I come, Father, into your presence. I don't have to go to an intermediary to talk to God. Jesus Christ says, I want you directly to talk to the Father. Because we go through him to the Father. And we have direct access to him. And uh, I think Martin Luther, before he was saved, you know, he um, made uh, bargains with God. And it's sort of interesting. It was always kind of funny to me. He says, well, I, I really... He feared God, so he didn't want to talk directly to God. And Jesus, he didn't think it was worthy to talk to Jesus. And the mother of Jesus, you know, everybody's talking to her, so she's probably busy. So he talked to the mother of Mary, and, and he talked to Anne. And so he made his petitions and he made his agreements with Anne so that she would tell Mary, who would tell Jesus, who would tell God. And that was in his pre-Christian days when he vowed to be a priest if God would get him out of the thunderstorm. But he made that vow to Anne. And so it's... But Jesus says, you have direct access to the Father. But that direct access is through Jesus. I never forget. So that's why when you say, in Jesus' name we pray, it's because our access into his presence is not a a magical formula we attach at the end of our chairs or a spiritual formula at the end of our prayers to to, to, make our prayers effective. We're just reminding ourselves and reminding God it is in Jesus' name, it is in his will and in his way that we come into your presence. So we go, we pray to the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. And it's like the Spirit of God who carries our prayers through Jesus Christ into the very presence of God. And Jesus Christ is praying for us and the Holy Spirit is praying for us. So a lot of prayers are going up for you, but you also are to be praying. Entering into God's presence in the rightful manner and... and, uh, the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple 
said there's a right way to enter into the presence of God. You enter into the presence of the king who is behind the curtain, the king who is in the holy of holies, and you are not worthy to go, but you enter into his presence by sacrifice and by this this whole process by which you have to enter carefully into his presence. Well, we still have to be careful in entering into God's presence. We come through Jesus Christ. I don't ever say to God, you know, I'm praying to you because I'm worthy to come all by myself. I'm not worthy all by myself. But here it's talking about standing and guarding yourself in the love of God. And never doubt the significance of your prayer life in that regard. And I think it's always important to, to rethink our prayer lives. Because it's very easy for me, I'm, I assume it's probably easy for you to pray and to pray for a while and then start thinking about something else. Has that ever happened to you? And sometimes I like to pray out loud because that sort of keeps me on task and on track when I'm praying. Uh, because there's a tendency to pray about something and then you pray about it and you start thinking about it and suddenly you find yourself doing more thinking than praying. And prayer is, is, a, is a, a fighting function to bring yourself into the presence of God and to be very specific in, 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 in specifically praying to him about the needs and concerns and the worship and the thanksgiving that we come before him with all of those things. But it's always good to, to rethink your prayer life because standing for the faith involves your prayer life Mainly because we never defeat false doctrine by argumentation. We always have the arguments and the truth on our side. I'm not against making a case for Christianity. I'm not against making a case for the truth. But I can tell you that our arguments are only successful in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the power of God. And in order for our arguments to be successful, God has to change the heart of the individuals with which we argue. And when people are false teachers, you're never going to defeat the false teachers with a splendid argument because every splendid argument you have, they will have a, an argument to counter your argument. And sometimes the false teachers are very brilliant people and they can talk all the way around you. It doesn't make them right. It doesn't make you wrong. But we don't defeat false doctrine by our strength and power and by our wit and wisdom. We defeat false doctrine and we stand in the love of God on our knees in prayer. So you have to be built up in the most holy faith and you must be praying in the Spirit. And this, again, this reference to the Spirit here is not some kind of special Holy Spirit prayer. It's prayer that, as I said, is, is carried by the Spirit of God. It's as if I, I love to think of the Holy Spirit as taking our prayers and sorting through them and getting them right and bringing it before God in, in uh, answering and providing and petitioning uh, in the way that our prayer should be brought before Him. That's also a part. You'll notice in this standing and guarding yourselves in in the guarding yourselves in the love of God, keeping yourselves in the love of God. 
the word fighting is not mentioned. Even the, the word arguing is not mentioned. But you build yourselves up in your most holy faith. You pray in the Holy Spirit. And you look. So you're building, you're praying, and you're looking. And what are you looking for? You're looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Looking for the mercy. The word mercy, again, is the word that it refers to to show pity. But it really means that, that to show favor. It's, it's to help to those who are in need of help. To those, I always like, I think mercy, I think it's, it's favor to the miserable. I think mercy and miserable. But it's, it, it's, it's really the, the, the favor of God... When he shows us mercy, we're in this miserable condition of being lost, blind, and dead, and sinners before a holy God. And God looks upon us, and because of what is in his heart, he has mercy. And therefore, he has favor on us in our miserable condition. Again, grace is the favor of God in our inability. But mercy is this this compassion of God, and and it speaks of being very compassionate. But it's looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jude sees the false teachers, you can tell when he speaks of these things, he's on fire. He, he is very unhappy about false doctrine and false teachers. But you also see that his desire is for mercy. And you're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking for him not only for his mercy for today in the context of all of this false teaching and false doctrine and those who would turn you away from being a Christian, but that you're looking that God would have mercy upon them and God would have mercy upon you. You're looking for his mercy in, in every facet of in every way in which you would see the need of help for those who are miserable. Or sometimes in the face of false doctrine, we're miserable. We're looking for the mercy of God today. But ultimately, you're looking for the mercy of God and the favor of God in His coming. And, and you're looking for the glory of God. This is another one of those passages that says, I'm, I'm looking for the mercy of God today, but I'm looking for the wonderful mercy of God when He comes and takes us out of this miserable condition. Though we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we still live in a lost, blind, and dead world. And we live as sinners saved by grace, and we live with the expectation that if the Lord himself does not come, we shall die. And we live with, with all of that. And we look for the mercy of God. And the, the Christian life has, has always has this expectation of glory, the expectation of coming of, of the Lord, the expectation of, of being caught up to meet Him. And when you are caught up to meet Him, suddenly everything about our lives is going to change. And it's going to change so dramatically that it's very difficult to give a description of what glory is really like. And that's why when you read what glory is like in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll read that passage and it'll use terms 
And you'll look at those terms and you'll say, oh, I understand it means you shall, we shall never be corrupted. We shall never die. We shall live forever. I don't know what that's like. Because we live our lives with the expectation at the end of life and the, that end of life is coming. And we have eternal life, so I do know that. But the expectation at the end of life, we die. And we, I looked at my parents, and I've seen at the end of their lives, they come. My dad has died. My mom is, doesn't know much of anything, and she doesn't know me. She doesn't know the family. She doesn't know anything. I don't even think she, at this point, knows the Lord. Knows him in the sense of being able to look to him and depend upon him and have peace and comfort. Thankfully, the Lord knows her, and he keeps her. But we look to the end and we say, well, that's where we're headed. So we think of all the things we're going to do before we come to the end. Because the end is there. And, and yet we know in Jesus Christ we have the hope of eternal life. But when Jesus Christ comes and we're caught up in glory, sin and death will be history. I don't know what that's like. It's kind of wonderful to think about that. But our whole life is about struggling to live. And that will not be the struggle. But the Lord says, keep, keep looking for that mercy and that mercy for you. And always keep that in front of your face. That's why I said I think Jesus, when he was going to the cross, kept the, the glory of God before him. And if you said to Jesus when he finished praying, where are you going? I don't think he would have said... I'm going to suffer and die and have this awful thing that's going to happen to me tomorrow. I think he would have said, I'm going to glory. I'm going to glory. Because that's how he's talking to his disciples. And you look, when you look at in the prayer of John 17, that Jesus Christ never says, Dear Father, sustain me at the cross. Help me to do this most difficult ministry. Help me. I need your strength. I need your encouragement. I need your power. What Jesus does in this prayer in John 17 is to look beyond to the glory. He knows that the, the pathway to glory requires the cross. It's right in front of him. It's the next day. He knows but he's not praying about the cross. He's praying about the glory. And sometimes in living our lives, we focus on the difficulties that are in front of us. And we have to see the difficulties in front of us because there they are. And every one of us has difficulties right before us. But the Lord says, keep your eyes on the glory. Keep your eyes on the mercy of God. Keep your eyes on the provision of God in this life and yet to come, when he comes, be looking to him. That's wonderful truth. So when you look at this passage, I'm also thankful that as we live looking, we live with this last statement. Now unto him, or now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from falling, and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. To God, to the only wise God, our Savior, 
Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you. And this is a different kind of keep. This is a protective keeping. He's, he's able to protect you. He says you are to keep yourselves. You have God who's keeping you in that sense in the first verse. And now there's a, a different sense of to be kept. But it's, it's a God who protects you. And I'm so thankful when I come to the end of this passage, I'm, I'm really thankful for verses 24 and 25. It's one of the reasons why we sing them repeatedly here at the church. Because it's the pronouncement of God's blessing, the God who keeps us. We have responsibility to keep ourselves, but I'm thankful. And I'm going to say a, a million times when I get to heaven by God's grace, when I get to heaven, I'm going to say I'm here by the keeping power of God. I'm not going to say that I've kept myself and got myself there. You'll never hear me say that. And we will all be saying, I'm here because of him. But he commands us to be obedient, to keep ourselves in the love of God. By building ourselves up, by praying, and by looking for the mercy that only he can give. So we live looking. And that's a great uh, challenge for us as Christians. Always be looking for the provision and the glory of God. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who keeps us. And we're thankful that you command us to keep ourselves in your love. And we pray that you will build us up in our most holy faith. We pray that you will hear us and answer our prayers. Uh, We pray that you will be merciful to us and merciful to those who need your mercy because they are miserable, lost, blind, and dead. And Father, we depend upon you. We're so thankful that we come into your presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have access in our own goodness. We don't have access because of our works or the things we have done. We have access because of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that when we pray, it is the Holy Spirit who prays with us and for us. And he intercedes for us. We just pray that you will continue to accomplish your purposes in our lives and in our church for your honor and glory. And we look for the blessings that only you can give. So may your hand be upon us. May you encourage us as we live for you and look for that which only you can give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.